If you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Exodus 32, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my anger shall go, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague upon the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. As we come to consider this portion of scripture, let's pray for God's help. Almighty God, how deeply we long to see you. And yet we find in your word this command not to make an image or any likeness that represents you, 
We struggle throughout this age against this limitation because we want to behold our God. Your people struggled before you had even finished making the covenant with them. And your people struggle today as well. Help us, O Lord, to see what is good. Not not just a rule, but what is good for us about perhaps this most disputed of your commandments. In particular, in a special way, would you overcome the deficiencies of the preacher? They are many. Bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. And we ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If I were uh, somehow able to jump forward in time by a few centuries, uh, you might guess the first thing I would do is find a bookstore. Um, And as I wandered the shelves into the the biography section, I might imagine very hypothetically, because there's no good reason that this would be true, that I could stumble across a biography about me. Uh, And I'm honored and excited but confused because on the cover here is a picture of an elderly Asian man. And so why would they depict me as I've never looked? And if they didn't know how I look, why have they tried? In John 1.18, the apostle tells us, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever put eyes on the divine essence. And so we have no real understanding of how God in himself looks. And so the question for us is if we have not been given something, if we don't have something that can be used to make a picture of him, Why would we try? As we consider the Ten Commandments, we arrive at the second commandment in Exodus 24 to 6. God said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's interesting, not something that I'll take up tonight, but it's interesting even just to notice that he would tie this issue of hating the Lord to the commandment about making images. In this series so far, we've highlighted how the Ten Commandments describe God's character and summarize the moral law. Each command has something to tell us about who God is, and for that reason, always binds human beings as those made in God's image. We are meant to reflect him 
who is described in the Ten Commandments. Each command is also a a compressed statement of a certain type of obligation before the Lord. The commandments summarize our responsibilities before God, but do not exhaust them. And so we must account for the implications, as not just the law, the command itself, but the implications of the Ten Commandments as they guide our lives. And that's why our catechisms have tended to ask two questions. What does the command require and what does it forbid? And the second commandment is that prohibition against making images of God or using images in worship. And we must reckon with how this command shapes our discipleship today. And so the main point is that the second commandment, the second commandment calls us to trust God by not going beyond our limits. Second commandment calls us to trust God by not going beyond our limits. And our three points are truths, trust, and timing. And so first, let's think together about truths. And the question, uh, you know, amidst the three that we have, uh, what does this tell us about God? How does it apply? And how does it point us to Christ? Here we take up, how is the second commandment grounded in God's nature? What does it tell us about God? And there, I think, are three ways that we need to take this up. First, um, this one's very simple uh, in in one way. Uh, God is invisible. We cannot depict what cannot be seen. His nature as such is not physical and so is not detectable on its own by the human eye. And so the second commandment forbids us uh, from pretending that God looks like something when he does not look that way. If we cannot see him, there's a sense in which he does not look any way. It prevents us from exceeding our limits, at least in this life, in that we don't know how God looks and cannot know in a respect, in this life, how God looks. Now, someone might object there. I've heard this. that uh, The second commandment actually seems uh, to forbid making any images at all. Uh, I, I don't like it when, when people try to test me how consistent I'll be with my premise because it usually goes very much not the way they were expecting, as if I will cave. But I'm not going to take that line up here. Uh, tonight, I just to offer that, well, Christians throughout the centuries have not understood it to forbid making any image at all, but to forbid it, the making of any image to depict God or the use of any image for the purpose of worship. And we can ask, isn't, isn't that what happened in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. They are meaning to depict the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They are in fact meaning to depict the true God. And we easily overlook that the Israelites weren't really after making an idol as if it was some other God, but 
were seeking to make an image of their God, the one who had led them to this point. Clearly, as these events unfold, God did not take kindly to that choice, even though they may have had, may have had, it's debatable, may have had the best of intentions. And you see how they realize that very quickly, even in Aaron's response. Well, I just put some stuff in the fire, and this happened to come out. And so the second commandment isn't about if you can paint a picture of a tree to represent a tree. It's about how we cannot make any likeness of a creaturely thing as if it represents God. And the Heidelberg Catechism 97 confirms this for us. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. So, I mean, the the payoff there is, you know, according to many of our historic documents, is that draw all the pictures of creaturely things you want as long as they are not meant to represent God. So first, that's, that's the first thing, right? Uh, the, the second commandment is grounded in God's nature because he's invisible. And so we shouldn't try to make him visible. Second, the, the second commandment is grounded in God's nature because God alone rightly generates his image. Not... Yeah, I'll, I'm going to explain that one. <laughs> that, that one's less straightforward. Here, here's what I mean, though. Uh, in the divine essence, the Father has eternally generated the Son, whom Hebrews 1.3 calls the exact imprint of his nature, the Father's nature. Right? Colossians 1.15 says that the Son is the image of, of the invisible God. And so, God has been generating his image as the Son comes forth from the Father eternally. So God has place to generate his image. And, and on that note, we should clarify, we should specify that the Reformed tradition has always understood that forbidding images of God includes forbidding making any images of the incarnate Christ. Westminster Larger Catechism 109 states that the second commandment forbids the making of any representation of God or all or any of the three persons. And to connect the dots for us, since Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, since Jesus is God, The second commandment forbids making any visual depiction of him at all, as well as forbids making any image of the Holy Spirit. That one's less contentious. Additionally, so we we have this one side where God has always, God the Father has eternally generated the Son as the exact imprint, as his image, the image 
of the immortal God. But additionally to that, to further this point that God alone has right to generate his image, the triune God created humanity after his image. And so God crafted his image into creation as he made us. <clears throat> so to put it, put it in this way, I think, is the, the, best, the best that can be done at representing God at the creaturely level has been done by God himself. And so we should not pretend that we can make better representations of him than he has when he alone has the right to generate, to send forth his image. Third, uh, the second commandment is grounded in God's nature because God alone has the right to determine how, so the means by which, how we will know and worship him. Heidelberg Catechism 96 says that God's will for us in the second commandment is that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any way other than has been commanded in his word. And so God sets the ways that we come to him. Anytime that we try to make a visible representation of God, we impose some kind of creaturely form onto the uncreated, invisible God. And further, making an image is a way of imposing our way of knowing God onto him. Rather, you know, it's saying the things that you have given us are not enough. This, this isn't sufficient for the way that I would like to know you. And so making an image is a way of imposing our way of knowing God onto him rather than submitting to the ways in which he reveals himself. Romans 1.20 says his invisible attributes are revealed in the things that have been made. We have a, a kind of knowledge of him through creation. He has revealed himself in scripture, in words, so that we uh, know who he is and know what he has done. And the Lord has not revealed, has not inspired any visible representations or any image of himself as how we should know him. Truths about God himself and how we relate to him require that we do not make any images of the Godhead. And that brings us to our second point, trust. Trust. How, How then does the second commandment apply to us today? In some respects, I mean, it's quite straightforward. Um, but, but I want to press a little bit further into this. The, the second commandment binds us to trust even when we cannot see. And I think that is, in fact, 
highly profound for why we ought to embrace and learn to love the implications of this commandment. The second commandment binds us to trust even when we cannot see. It enjoins us to have faith, to believe in God, even when we cannot put eyes on the fulfillment of a promise. And how often in the Christian life can we not see? How frequently do we not have vision of the end of things? And I, in fact, think the second commandment is for our help in this very way. And I want, I want to get at the, the pastoral heart of this commandment. I am painfully aware uh, that potentially the application of the second commandment might be very hard to accept. Um, it, it gets at things we like. And that's when things get diciest in applying the word of God. Um, I have to set before you my pastoral burden here, which, which is and has been heavy on my heart about why the second commandment is good for us. This isn't about simply suck it up and, and do what the Reformed tradition has said. I think that there are serious reasons why this is good for us. Why it directs us into greater holiness. And why it actually helps us in amazing ways. Um, now, I know one of, the, one of the obstacles here <laughs> is that we live in a visual age. I, I know that visual media is the most popular form of communication of all sorts. I mean, even our written material, uh, you know, I mean, I get questions about my books. Does it have any pictures? <laughs> no. Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, I realize that this is one of the things that is ingrained into us, that it, it makes things flashy. And for people, you know, in an age where most people lack the executive function of, uh, you know, of thought. Uh, it keeps attention spans renewing. And so the Reformed tradition runs against every bit of the grain of the 21st century uh, and our methods uh, and, and modern methods as we take a stand against depicting the most fundamental aspects of our message, God himself. And that's, that's hard for people to accept. If you, if you can't give me a TikTok video of your most important thing, how am I supposed to accept it? But I believe, I believe that the reformed view of the second commandment that we should not make any visual representation of the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit is truly most profitable for our souls. It, it plays out in how we relate to God, in how we learn to trust God, 
and in how we learn to submit to God. And so first, thinking about how this um, plays out, you know, how does this apply? Sometimes people push back that it's, especially Jesus, right? I mean, the most pointed, uh, you know, instance of, of talking about second commandment violations is always going to be that people want to depict Jesus. Drawings, paintings, um, motion picture uh, media. And sometimes people push back that it's all right to make an image of God as long as we don't worship that image or use it to worship. I struggle greatly with that idea. Um, Especially as it is used to defend making images of Christ. Because the phrase, here's Jesus, don't worship, doesn't make any sense to me. What true Jesus might I see that I would not worship him? How would you show me Christ and forbid me from worshiping? Um, The cogency of the thought, look at Jesus, don't worship, um, might be dangerous and wrong in ways that we, even if it is not those things, it is at least cruel to let me put eyes on Jesus and not let me worship him. If I see God, I must worship. How could it be other? How do, where is any example that runs contrary to that in the holy word of God? And so I think that we must keep the second commandment as we understand it, because ultimately we will drift into worship by an image. And we'll begin, we will begin to ground our relationship with God on something we can see. And that in particular is highly dangerous. Second, second. Uh, when we tie our relationship to God, to what we can see, our faith suffers. So much of the Christian life is about trusting God when we cannot see. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for The conviction of things not seen. If we start to practice our faith in ways that lean or even rely upon what is seen, we move away from how our faith must be in this age. Until Christ returns, The Christian life must be one of faith apart from what we can see. 
2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. So we are always of good courage. That's important. We want to be people of good courage. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord because we walk by faith, not by sight. We can, we become of good courage because we walk by faith and not by sight. And we should not start to pull our faith into the things that we can see. We trust, even apart from what our eyes can behold. If we depend on what we can see, we will falter and we will fade. The second commandment helps us. It's it's not just God being stingy and squishing the fun. The second commandment helps us. Because it reminds us the nature of faith. That God is at work in us and is for us. Even when we cannot see him. Christ is at work on our behalf. Pleading our case in heaven. Even though we cannot see him. Now I know. I know that many feel as if they have been helped by visual media that depicts Jesus. But as soon as, as soon as we start to think of an image that helps us get closer to Jesus, is that not bringing us to worship? Is not closeness to Jesus on account of whatever medium we use, the pathway of worship, And so, what way should we use to get close to Jesus? The ways that we might imagine that he could look, or the ways that he has given himself to us in word, sacrament, and prayer. And so third, the second commandment helps us by teaching us... um, By teaching us more fully how to submit to the Lord throughout this life in every way. So to put that a different way, um, the second commandment uh, compresses, uh, encapsulates the effect of learning or, you know, the, um, the way that we might learn to submit to the Lord in every other way as well, because this one is hard. (laughs) And as we learn to submit here, we learn to submit in so many other ways. We might feel as if an image helps us. And since God has said that we should not have them, we must accept that despite how we may feel, we have not been helped by them. We must learn that the best way forward is always because we trust him 
is always submission to what God has said and not in how we might feel. And in this way, this is one of the reasons why I think uh, I cannot back away from this. I have, to, I have to put this in front of us. Because uh, in this way, I think the second commandment has a unique value for our day and age. We are taught, as is obvious throughout the Western world, that we should submit to our own individualism. That our ways of expression and the way that we want to go must be right. We are taught that we govern our own reality, that our desires govern our own reality. We are taught to do what is right in our own eyes. We are told that the worst thing that we could do is to suppress our feelings and all of the heinous cultural issues that lay heavy on each one of your hearts ties in some way to that premise. And the second commandment tells us that things are otherwise. It says that even though an image might feel good, the most fruitful and faithful way forward is through God's appointed ways of relating to him. We, we cannot invent the ways that we approach God because we must learn to submit to how he has said that we might know him. Westminster Shorter Catechism 51 brings the same idea to bear. The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. When I was a child, I gave a, a, a kiddie pool to my mom for Mother's Day. Um, now, obviously, this was something I wanted and was of no use to her. Uh, it had really nothing to do with what would honor or please her. It was about what I desired. And I should have thought about what she wanted on her day. And so too, we must learn, we must learn it in principle and we must learn it as a principle of submission that we must not think that worship is about what is nice for us. That's not to say things of worship aren't nice for us. The point is, the governing principle of what we ought to do as we gather as God's people is not what feels nice. If you want to request never to get off the ground with me, don't start it with, it might be nice if. Um, I, I'm not joking. 
Worship must, worship is about and must be about what truly honors and pleases God. And so we listen to what he has revealed in scripture to know that, to know those ways, to know the things that honor and please him. And, and that's, you know, as I have tried to impress upon you so many times, the things that we do as we gather are training for the Christian life. It is an, an intensified uh, experience of the routines, the patterns that we ought to have in every day as we walk with the Lord. And since worship trains us for the whole Christian life, as we learn about the value of submitting to how God's word tells us how to worship, we are trained more widely for the whole Christian life to submit to God in everything. And so as we learn submission to this, submission as we walk with the Lord in all things becomes easier. And the second commandment implies that we worship only as God says, because, because that submission will help us learn and practice how to live faithfully for God in every way. It overflows from this one thing into all things as we learn to bow before what God has said. The second commandment inspires trust as we depend on what God has said rather than upon what we can see. That brings us to our third point, timing. Timing. How does the second commandment point us to Christ? Well, as much as we've belabored that we cannot know him through an image, we are thankfully not left without some way to know him. And it's striking how Paul puts this in Galatians 3.1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Before your eyes. That he was depicted. And Paul goes on to say that this public portrayal was never in, well he doesn't say it this way, but we gather that this portrayal was never in any picture, but in the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Christ has given us the means of grace, the means that he has promised to use, that we might know him. Word, sacrament, and prayer are how we experience Christ. And how Christ is brought to bear upon our souls. And here's the thing. When, when we struggle, and we will, in so deeply wanting to see Christ, to see our God, counterintuitively, let us rejoice in that struggle. We struggle because we are made to see him. And the struggle is hard because life 
this side of glory is hard and one where we are not equipped to see the Lord face to face. We are not yet home. But Christ lived, died, and rose to bring us home. Moses had to intercede for the people. Don't destroy them. They are yours. They belong to you. And so Christ steps between the wrath of God and us to intercede, saying, don't destroy them. They belong to you. And he is able to do that because he did take on flesh. So that even though we should not take it upon ourselves to make images of him, one day, one day, we will put physical eyes upon God as we see him in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I think we should embrace the difficulty of that struggle as a good thing. Because this age is not the age of sight. And we don't want it to be. This isn't the end of all things. Praise God. There is more and there is better to come. And as we submit to that reality, even as it is difficult, we learn of the beauty of the age to come. Because the age for sight is coming. Matthew 5.8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Revelation 22.3 and 4 no longer, where, so in contrast to this age, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. We will see God in the future. The second commandment presents us with gospel truth about timing. Absence ought to make the heart grow fonder. And the longer that we go where we cannot see God, the more we should long to see Him. We should not try, we should not even try to alleviate the difficulty in this life of not getting to see God because it is not yet right to see him. But it will be, and it will be good. Just as it is not right for man and woman to see and do certain things before they are married, so we await the marriage supper of the Lamb when it will be right and it will be good to see him. He will come. We will behold his glory. 
and faith will give way to sight. Let's pray. Father God, the things we, we so frequently long to be countercultural, and yet the things where it might be easiest to be countercultural are often the things where we would prefer to embrace the culture. Let us learn at least what, whatever I have said. Let us learn what you would have us know about how the second commandment is good for our lives in this age and points us to how we might know the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would know him more closely, even because of what we've considered this evening, and be ready, equipped to walk with him in the days before us. We ask it for his sake, in his name. Amen.